Well, again, welcome to Lakeside. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, Michael, who just led us in worship on Tuesday, he reached out to me and he said, you know, what, what are maybe, what's the sermon going to be about this week? I'm about to, to pick the songs for this week, and so any guidance would be helpful. So I wrote him back and I said, the sermon's going to be about God. And so any, any songs that you know about God, um, you know, feel free to sing. And he said, yeah, that's, that's funny. Oh, so what's the title of the message? And I said, who is God? And he said, oh, I thought you were joking. And so, I mean, partially was, but um, you did a great job in, uh, in picking songs and, and also looking forward to the last one. But if you've already maybe looked at the back of your handout, you'll see that uh, the title of our message is, Who is God? And, and we're, we're going back to the basics, the foundations is how we're describing it. That's the name of this series, uh, Foundations. And actually, it was Jesus who at the end of what we have as sort of our longest recorded sermon of his, what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of that sermon, Jesus said, uh, he, he gave a, a picture for everyone to kind of keep in their own minds. He said, there, there's somebody who... Anybody who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who has built his house upon a rock. And when the storm comes and the winds blow and the rain comes, the house will still stand because it's built on a rock. He said, anybody who ignores my words and and doesn't do what I'm teaching them to do, theirs is going to be like a house that's built on the sand. And when the storms come and the winds rage, their house will not endure the storm. And so the importance that he impressed upon his people to build their faith, their hope, their future on a solid foundation, on a rock solid foundation that when the storms come, their house that has been built can endure. And so that's what we're looking at. What are the foundational beliefs that we have as Christians here at Lakeside Christian Church from which our other convictions come, from which our other ones flow. So we're trying just not to assume anything and and just explain from very back at the beginning and the basics, what is it that we believe and why is it that we believe it? We have a statement of faith, a confession of faith as a church. There's eight points in it, but we can take those eight and we can break them up into three questions. And so those three questions are kind of what's forming our series. The first one is, what is the Bible? And that's what we looked at last week. What we're considering today is, who is God? And in our statement of faith, um, points two through five uh, give our answer to that, our foundational answer to that. And then the third question, what is the purpose of life? So what is the Bible? Is it possible to know God in any, in any way with any confidence? If it is, what is God like? And then why are we here? And, and what's the purpose of our own lives? And, and what's the end? What are we, what are we going towards uh, in our life? And so those are the, the big questions that you could break up our statement of faith. And these questions are questions that human beings have asked forever. There used to be this idea out there that as we had more technology developed and became more advanced as a society, people would believe in God less and less because they could find their their own way of getting around and doing things and they, they just wouldn't be as dependent on believing in something greater or bigger than themselves. You won't even find sociologists who'll tell you that anymore because Though the world is advancing and technology is growing, uh, belief in God is not shrinking in any way. Religions are growing, spirituality is as popular as ever, because no matter how much our technology grows, we still have these basic questions that cannot be answered by just typing them into a computer. 
You know, so some of you, you have a, an iPhone and you have a program in there where you can ask questions about how to get a phone number to a restaurant you want or, or different information that you just need to look up quickly. Well, if you type in there and say, what is the purpose of my life? Will you get a meaningful answer back? Why are you here? What's going to happen to you after you die? Who can, who can give you those kinds of answers? Not a computer, not a government, but those questions endure in our own minds. A desire to know, is there something more than we can simply see, feel, and touch? And if there is, what is that? And so we're looking today at now this second question, who is God? And I put on the back of the handout um, the statement from our confession of faith, and so I'll just read that right now. But that's what we're looking at. Who is God? And to answer that, I'm just going to first give, just kind of put all the cards on the table, and then, and then we'll go through it. But just a heads up, uh, we're going to be going to a lot of different parts like we did last week throughout the Bible. We're not going to find one passage and just land there for the entire time. So I will encourage you, if you're willing, to have a Bible open and to turn along with us. But it's going to feel like we're doing a tour de force of, of the whole Bible going back and forth to try to show what does the Bible say about who is God. But we put in this initial statement, we believe that there is one God eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we give the verses from which those convictions come. And then if you open on the inside of the handout, the next three statements in our statement of faith are under the we believe section. What do we believe about God the Father? What do we believe about Jesus his Son? And what do we believe about the Holy Spirit? I won't read those in detail, but that's a a more extended version of this summary statement here at the back. But this first claim, that we believe that God is one, I'm going to ask you to go to the book of Exodus first. Exodus, it's the second book in the Bible. One of the very encouraging things as we get started is that as we ask this question, who is God, that is a question that people in the Bible themselves asked. And so where we're going is to a story about a person named Moses who'd had this experience that didn't all make sense to him, but he was wondering, who is it that's talking to him? Who is it that he's dealing with? And so he asks God directly, basically, who are you? And uh, you'll find this on page 46. We're in chapter three of Exodus. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, and we're beginning in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And that's where we'll stop. Now, if you're reading it and you're saying, wait, where was the name? <laughs> it's not in there. That's the question. If, if I go to them and I'm, I'm going to say to them, I've met you, you've spoken to me, and they say, who spoke to you? Who talked to you? What is your name? What should I tell them? And this description, I am who I am. Now, that's just a phrase that is impossible to exhaust in, in what it could mean and what it 
implies, but we're just going to try to draw a couple of things out of it, but we won't be able to say everything that could be said. That this idea that there is one God and no other God, that there is one God who is above everything, who is not created. Everything that we can see, touch, and feel is something that was created. And if there's one God who is not created, in some way he must be totally different than anything we can see, touch, or feel. Because he is not created. And so right off the bat, our ways of thinking and experiencing and speaking are going to be very, very limited accurately describe who this God is like. And so this phrase, tell them, I am has sent you, is this way of preserving, we could almost say too much that we would start to limit how people think about God. And one of the worst things that we can do in thinking about him is start adding on limitations of who he is. He says, I am who I am. And I will be, then he goes on to say for the people of Israel, I will be all that you need me to be in all of the experiences that you face. But I can't be defined in ways that you could, could fully and completely understand. If I could, I'd be like a creature. And I'm not a creature. I'm the, I'm the creator of everything that you can see. And so if you just think about it, you and I are a day older today than we were yesterday. God is not He's not a day older today than he was yesterday. When we say that God is eternal, that he's one, that he's always been, that he's never been created, that he'll never die, we're saying he's, he's totally different than we are. He's not older. He's not aging. He's not decaying in the ways that every one of us is experiencing. So Moses doesn't get maybe the answer that he'd hope for, but in what God says to him, he realizes, wow, this is, this is bigger and better than, than maybe even this immediate experience that I'm having had initially given me the clue. So then, in the law of God, a way to preserve this idea that we shouldn't limit God in any way is that in the very law itself were certain commandments about how people were supposed to think and not think about God. So now I'm going to ask you to go just a couple books later to the book of Deuteronomy. So this is the fifth book in the Bible. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to do chapter 6 first and then chapter uh, 5. This is page 151. In verse 4, this is a, a statement, a confession of faith by the people of Israel that if we were to go to have gone to synagogue yesterday this would have been repeated. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's where we're stopping for there. This, this idea that the God that these people of Israel are worshiping is not just their God, their individual God who's going to meet their needs. In the day and age when this was written, most people believed in God's. And so the Egyptians had their gods and the Assyrians had their gods and the Philistines had their gods so that if the people of Israel came and said, we have a God too, that would have been partially misleading because it would have just said, 
our God, we have a God like you have a God. And there's just a bunch of them out there. But that's not what Israel believes. They're saying we believe there is only one God. There's only one God. There are not other gods. There's only one. And so while we do as a people want to follow him and and promise to him our obedience, we're not saying that he's ours just to make up and just say, well, what do we think he's like? And let's just describe him and, and, and just kind of come up with all of our best ideas of what we think he's like. No, they're insisting he is there, he is real, he is big, and he's unlike anyone or anything else we could possibly imagine, completely unique. And so insisting in the oneness of God is a way to say that, that there's nothing else like him. So now if you look at chapter five, we have the 10 commandments being given. And the second commandment, we'll start in verse six, and it's sort of the intro to the commandments, and then seven and eight is the first commandment and the second commandment. So the intro, verse six. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Seven, you shall have no other gods before me or beside me. And then eight, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And that's where we'll stop. So in their now hearing that there is a God and he's above and beyond everything, now they're told one of the ways to preserve that in how they think about and how they worship God is that they're not supposed to make any image of any kind and say, this is our God. There's a number of things that they could draw from and say, oh, God is big and strong, and so let's, let's use like a lion because lions are big and strong. But he's saying, no, don't do that. He's going to endure forever, and so let's just put up this big rock because rocks endure, and they don't seem to get old over time. And he's saying, no, 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 don't use any image. When you think about me, I don't want any created thing to come into your mind when you're thinking about me. I want you to think you're above it all. You're bigger than it all. You're better than it all. And so that was one of the ways that this group of people was different in their worship than every other group. Every other group had built some elaborate thing and said, here, this, right here is our God. Let's all bow down and worship this. And what the Jews insisted over and over again is that if there is one God who is above all of creation, then we should not in any way try to make an image of what he looks like. Because our habit as people is that we often make images that work for us, that, that we want to see. And we project our ideas in our images and say, oh, wow, you made this image? It's amazing how much God looks like you <laughs> and how much he looks like what, what you're hoping to become. And so he doesn't, he doesn't do that. The second commandment says to every one of them, you're going to go wrong if you try too hard to picture me. And so even... Now that we as Christians say that God has come in the flesh and he has lived 
out among us so that we can see things and we can know things, there's something fascinating when you read the New Testament about Jesus. It never describes to us what he looks like. You can't. It doesn't, it doesn't ever tell you how tall he is, how much he weighed, how long or short his hair was, if he had a receding hairline or not. It doesn't tell us anything about what he looks like. And so when you look at images and you go to a museum and somebody's painted this picture of Jesus, you'll often find that their pictures of Jesus reflect, uh, have more to say about the painter and the society that he was painting in than it does anything about Jesus. And so if you go to the Cleveland Museum of Art and you see all these pictures of Jesus, you'd think Jesus was a 17th century European, not a first century Jew. Why does he have fair skin and blue eyes? There's nothing in the Bible that would tell us that's what he looked like. And we have a lot of reasons to believe that's not what he would look like. And so part of even the tradition of this church, if you look through the stained glass, is that there's an intentionality that in everything that is depicted, there is not a picture of Jesus. There's not a picture of Jesus on the cross. There's not a picture of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And so I don't want to say that it's, it's wrong for other traditions that have in their stained glass a lot of that, but there's an intentionality behind the fact that that is not any of the images that you see. The images in the middle of the glass are meant to remind you things about God's word, characteristics of who God is, things that happened in Jesus' life, but there is specifically no attempt to try to say this is what he looked like. Because the important thing about him is not what he looked like. And so the Jews, in their description of him as the one God, totally unique from everything else, have this commandment that they would not make any image of any kind to try to depict him. Now I'm going to ask you to go to 1 Kings chapter 8. As you're turning there, this is on page 288. <clears throat> As these commandments were given, then all of a sudden, a lot more commandments were given to, to the people. They were told to make a temple. They were told to create a, a place where people could worship this one God who was totally different than anybody or anything else. But it took a long, long time before this nation could actually have their own land be safe enough from other enemies that they could finally build and construct this temple to worship this God that was different, that was totally unique. One of the things that they were told specifically to build is what we read about is the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark, there's all of these instructions about how it's supposed to be built, how people are supposed to carry it, what's supposed to be on top of it, what the materials are supposed to be made of. But then when all of that's said and done, it's described as on top of it having what's, what the Jews understand is the mercy seat. And then they were told that on top of that seat is where God's presence would be known and dwell. So it is, if you will, this intentional space that's created, but nothing's on it. Again, because the goal is to not have something created come into your mind when you think about who this unique and different God is. And so this mercy seat is there. Finally, Solomon, it's David's son, is able to build this temple. And they're able to see all the fulfillment and all the promise of this original law that had been given to Moses now come out to play. They build this temple. And what we read in 1 Kings chapter 8, looking at verse 23. 
This is Solomon dedicating now in front of all these people who are gathered to worship God. And he says, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Now go to verse 27. He says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And that's where we'll stop. So now this temple is built. They've made all of it exactly to the instructions that God had given them in the law. And Solomon in his dedication says, everything that we built, it can't contain you. The heavens can't contain you. So there is nothing that we can make that you can be contained. All of our best efforts, all of us getting along together and doing everything right, we cannot contain or accurately and totally and completely define who God is. Now we're going to go to the book of Acts in the New Testament just to show you that this is the view of God all throughout the Bible. Acts 17 Paul is actually addressing a whole group of people in Acts 17 on page 926. Who are like the surrounding nations in Israel's day. They worship gods all the time and they make images of God all the time. And Paul wants them to think very differently. When he comes to proclaim God, he doesn't want them to think, oh, this is just another God among all these other gods and he's just like them. Paul wants to to completely change the way they think about who this God is. So in Acts 17, we'll begin in verse 24. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And that's where we'll stop. So there we have it. This God who made everything that is, does not dwell in temples, doesn't dwell in churches, There's nothing we can build that can fit him in. There's nothing that we as human beings can do to serve him. We can't give him information he doesn't have. We can't offer him resources that he isn't already the owner of. He's the God over everything. But he says that this God has put within our own hearts a desire and a longing that we should seek him and that we would feel our way toward him and find him. And that though he's so big and he's so great, he is not far from any one of us. These are amazing statements about God. That he is so big that nothing we could do or think could ever really, really do an accurate job of identifying him, of summarizing him. But yet, he wants us to know him. We can't know everything about him, but he wants us to know something about him. And in knowing that, he is close to us. That he has drawn near to us. 
And so this is a picture when we say, who is God? He is the person that is bigger than any one of us with all of our creativity and all of our effort could ever summarize or ever serve. This is the one God. Now, if you remember what we said in our statement, we believe there is one God eternally existent in three persons. So one God, what do we mean when we say three persons? Here I'll ask you to go to John chapter 8. This is Jesus in John chapter 8. And now having seen what God said to Moses and what the Bible all throughout tells us of God, this statement will make a lot more sense to us. Jesus' interaction with the Jews in John chapter 8 on page 895. We're going to begin in verse 56. So Jesus now speaking in verse 56 to the Jews of his day, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's where we're going to stop. So Jesus here uses the description that Moses received in Exodus. He doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. I mean, that alone would still be an amazing claim. They're like, look, you're not even 50, you're 30-some years old. What do you mean Abraham rejoiced to see your day? That's already mind-boggling. But he doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He says, Before Abraham was, I am. That exact phrase that says, I too have no beginning. And because I have no beginning, I have no end. And it says just after this, the people listening were so offended by that, they picked up rocks to throw it at him. They understood what he was claiming. And that's ultimately what Jesus died for. He was accused and charged for blasphemy. What is blasphemy? It's, it's saying things about God that are offensive or not true and painting a bad picture of God. And Jesus, in saying to these people <clears throat> that Abraham had actually rejoiced to see his day, that he precedes Abraham, not only in order, but in authority, that he's greater than, that could only be said of God. That can't be said of any human being And that can't be said of any angel. The phrase, I am, with nothing else, is something that can only be said of God himself. And so we get this picture, and then as we read through the Gospels and through the New Testament letters, Jesus describing this relationship that he has with the Father, that he said, the Father and I are one, and the Father loves me, and I love the Father. And I'm going back to him, and we're going to have what we had before the world was created. Like, what are you? You're going to do what? And he said, yeah, there's God that, that you talk about, that you know, that you won't use any image to describe. He's my father. I'm his unique son. And we've been in this unique relationship forever. And when I leave here, that's where I'm going back to. I said, Really? 
And it was something hard for almost all of them to believe, even his closest disciples did not believe it. And one of the proofs that the New Testament gives us that Jesus is who he said he was, is that the grave that he was in is now empty. There's an empty space again. And they said, wow. Yeah. It, was, it is hard for us to get our minds around, but what he said, he then demonstrated and he proved to us. So when we say persons, you have to understand, if, if we're saying both of those things at the same time, one God, three persons, we don't mean three gods. That's not what we're saying. There's only one God. It would be a contradiction if we said we believe in one God and we believe in three gods. Say, you got to pick. <laughs> you can't say both of those. But we don't feel like we have to pick. We believe in one God and three persons. And here again, when we try to make sense of it, everything we would use to describe it falls short in some way. So I'm just going to provide a little bit of a description just so that we can hopefully see the, the, the possibility of how this could work. It doesn't define it perfectly, but I am one person, and yet I can be thought of in three different ways. I am someone's son, I am someone's brother, and I'm someone's husband. I'm one, but I'm, I'm, I'm three different things. I'm one and I'm three different things. I'm not three different people. And so we believe in this one God, and yet there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that doesn't make them three gods. And so we're, we're denying what had been revealed all throughout the Old Testament, Jesus himself was the most adamant, and he repeated the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So how do we make sense of this? You go to the end of Matthew. So we're going to go to the end of Matthew's gospel. Here's Jesus giving us this picture. Matthew 28. And this is Jesus now saying to all of his followers, after he's risen from the grave, the tomb is empty, and he says to them, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. So here's Jesus. And he says, baptize them in the name, singular, in the one name, in the one God that is there. And when he describes it, he says, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This one and this three. This one God, this one name, and yet these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the, one of the last places we're going to turn is the end of 2 Corinthians. So this is a New Testament letter Paul is writing because now we have to ask the question, okay, so why does it matter? Are we just trying to solve a math problem here and we'll get like a sticker at the end that says, good job, um, you, you figured it out. No, so why does this matter? Well, at the end of 2 Corinthians, the very last thing that the apostle says is he's wishing everybody well. In verse 14, chapter 13, 
This is on page 971. uh, Paul says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So here again, the three, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so there's two distinctives that we as Christians have in our understanding of God and what we believe about him because we embrace this tension and this mystery that there is one God in three persons. Two things. We can say that God is love and that salvation is by grace. Those two beliefs are distinctive beliefs that we come to because we believe that there is one God in three persons. And so he says here, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It is only in the New Testament that we have this description. It's specifically in John's first letter that we have recorded for us that God is love. Other religions can say that God loves And he loves people at times and he does loving things. But it's only Christianity that says, actually, God is love. That we get in 1 John chapter 4 on page 1023. If you go there, and it's in 1 John 4 that we're going to wrap up. So here we have this description of God. This one God in three persons and one of the distinctives that comes from that We'll start in verse 7. This is on page 1023. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's where we'll stop. To hear this description that God is love. That from all of eternity, God has not only been great and he's not only been big and amazing, but that there is love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that creation flows out of that love. God created you because he loves you. God sent his son to redeem you because he loves you. God is making a new world, a new heavens and a new earth because of his love for us. That is something we can believe when we also believe and understand that God is one God in three persons. And then from that, what flows, which was here described, because of that, love is not something that we can earn from God. If he's so big and so great that we can't contain him, there's also nothing we can do to earn his love for us. What could we do that would impress him? What could we do that he'd say, what? I'd never thought of that before. That is so great. That is so amazing. I'm so glad that you were able to do that. And this says no, but we don't have to. His love for us is eternal. It's unconditional. 
And you'll find, and I just challenge you if you don't believe me, to look at other religions that do not affirm this tension, that don't believe that there is one God in three persons, that they have an understanding of salvation that is basically a salvation of works and not a salvation of grace. That there is something that they have to do, that they have to be good enough or smart enough, they have to do something in order to be saved. And it is only Christianity that says there's nothing we can do. And salvation comes to us as a gift by grace because God loves us. And that's something that we can hold on to. That is the God that we worship. And so you say, man, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around how I can believe this. Well, can you believe in love? Do you believe that love is a real thing? How do you explain it? What does it look like? And you realize, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm in a similar trap. It's not exactly like something I can touch, something I can make an image of. If I try to put a picture up and say, this is love, no, it, it, it could be that, but it's also other things. And so we who believe that love is real, that love is possible, have every reason just as much to believe God is real and that this God, because of what this word tells us and because of what his son did for us, loves us and loves us without condition. And so that's why we sing and that's why we praise him for everything that he's done and all that he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we admit that in one message, in one time opening up our Bibles, we could never say everything that needs to be said about you. But we admit even more than that, that if we had our whole lives to try, we still couldn't do it. We don't have enough energy, we don't have enough intelligence to get our minds around how great and how big and how awesome you are. But Father, we, we, we long to know you and to know things about you because we want to have a relationship. And we believe that that is your desire for us. That everybody here can know true things about you. That they can confess their sins to you. That they can bring their prayers before you. That you are not far from any one of us, even though you are so much bigger and so much greater than any one of us. Father, we need your mercy and your grace, your spirit inside of us to help unpack this. But Father, we desperately, we don't want to leave from this place without being transformed by your truth. We don't want to just learn things, Father. We want to know you and we want to have you impact and change the way we live our lives because of your great and unconditional love for us. And so we pray that you would do that in your mercy and in your grace. Amen.